politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman to the one and only CR podcast here at Blaze Media, November 16th. It is Tuesday, and it is another good day to fight for liberty because every day is a good day to fight for it because we don't have too many left when we have the opportunity to do so. Um, folks, we're going to do, again, another data science show. Uh, hopefully, if we can get our tech working out here, we'll have a special guest on to do a deep dive into theirs, the reporting, the scope of safety signals and adverse events that we're missing. But I want to start out first with just the big picture of where we stand here. We're two weeks out from that big election where Republicans won big. And yet, in red state after red state, Wyoming, North Dakota, we couldn't get anything passed. They're meeting now in in Florida. They're meeting in the Idaho House. We have Fred Wood, the chairman of the health care committee there in Idaho. He opposes everything. He's like, he supports Fauci fully. He refuses to hold hearings on any bill. We need to self-separate from these people. Because we have failed even in deep red states for so many years to vet these people out. We are now stuck with these terrible, terrible problems. And, um, you know, I just I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do here. We got to self-separate. We got to self-separate. And we need a 2020 vision. So I'm going to be working on this vision in the coming days, a new contract with America, um, an effort to have a constitutional amendment on bodily integrity. Um, And I think we could all work through that together, all this stuff. Um, And from there, I think we could at least create a few good states. So anyway, there's a lot to get to, but first, speaking of a 2020 vision, folks, a lot of people never see correctly through their glasses. They never get proper eyewear. I got my GoSpecs lenses from Rodenstock, the authentic German-engineered eyewear with a 144-year-old track record, over 500 patents. Uh, They're expert opticians specialize in difficult prescriptions, astigmatisms, those experiencing problems with progressives. If you want to get lenses like I have, go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative. You could schedule a teleoptical appointment. That way you don't have to wear a mask. And they're offering my audience an introductory 61% off their GoSpecs lenses plus free handcrafted Rodenstock frames. Again, visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. Never put those glasses in a shelf never to be used again, wear them proudly. Okay, so we have this story I wanted to get out to you, if nothing else, before we get to our guest segment. It's so important, and it speaks to what is going on with what we face. So what they tried to do is first acclimate ourselves to the idea of a booster, Right? They couldn't say everyone needs a booster because then they're admitting that it doesn't work. So they have to inch their way into it. But now they've made it clear that indeed it doesn't work. Okay, Indeed it doesn't work. And that's how they're able to screw with us now with endless boosters. Oh yeah, it doesn't work. Now you need a booster. Nowhere is this more evident than in Gibraltar. 
Now, I'm going to have a piece out either later today or tomorrow. If you're looking for examples to send to your skeptical friends, um, 10 places that show that the vaccine not only failed, but it's worse than it ever was with very high and often universal vaccination rates. Gibraltar is the most vaccinated place on the planet. 100% of the people there have um, the shot and 40% have a booster. And yet they're now on their second wave of Delta. Second one. Post-vaccination. 100%. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide from the failure, and worse than failure, vaccine-mediated viral enhancement clearly emanating from Gibraltar. Okay? They have one of the highest death rates on Earth. It's horrible there. And now they are at what is the equivalent of roughly 1,600 cases per million, much higher, almost twice as high as our winter peak. That's where they are on their second wave post-vaccination. Mind you, pre-the vaccine, they never had a problem. And that's true of a lot of these small countries like Seashells and Singapore. And basically, the health minister, Hans Samantha Sacramento, announced that they're asking everyone to drastically cut back their Christmas plans and to conduct themselves in a cautious and sensible manner. Okay? The drastic increase in the number of people testing positive for COVID-19 in recent days is a stark reminder that the virus is still very prevalent in our community and it is the responsibility of us all to take reasonable precautions. Think about that. So who are they going to blame? Who are they going to blame if 100% are vaccinated? Well, I'll tell you who they're going to blame. They went on and said, first of all, the government advises against any large informal social events or receptions, parties. Cases have grown exponential throughout October and continue into November and has become even more exponential in the last few days. And then they announced that they're going to work on getting everyone a booster shot. So there you go, folks. There's no end to this cycle because they could always blame it on, oh, well, not enough people got the third one. So then you have to wait until you get 100% of the people get a third one. And it's, well, now you got, got to get a fourth one. It will never end. The more they do it, until 100% of people get the virus, and then even then you wonder if this is going to slide back natural immunity, it's going to get worse. And they're going to continue blaming on other people. They're going to continue blaming it on other people. So I wanted you to know that that is the paradigm of what's going on here. Now, a couple of other stories to get to um, before we get on with our guest. We talked about on Friday with Dr. Mary Bowden, the doctor that was kicked out of one uh, uh, hospital in Houston. This is happening in the red state of Texas. Texas Health Hughley Hospital wrapped a towel around Jason Jones's feeding tube to block his wife, Erin, from administering the ivermectin herself. If you remember, they called out the cops to block a court order. Now, they claim they did get a, a, a stay from an appellate court, and they're tying a cloth around the feeding tube so his wife can't give him ivermectin. 
folks, if this is not everything you need to see, just like Gibraltar is 100% revealing on the failure and counterproductive nature of the shot, this is revealing on what they are and aren't doing in terms of therapeutics. And both of them reveal that this is one big genocide. This is truly unbelievable. And yet, when we propose the bill to protect doctors prescribing ivermectin, not even a right to try in there, I don't know, maybe it was in there, in one Idaho representative's bill, the House committee chair of the healthcare committee, Fred Wood, says he's not even holding a hearing on it. Arkansas, we had a bill passed that blocked um, state officials from any state institution from having a vaccine mandate, right? So not only did the governor block any effort to deal with the private businesses, but he said, oh, we're not going to have it among the state officials. Well, they're, they're thwarting the bill. They're not listening to the bill. This dirtbag chancellor of of um, this uh, teaching hospital, it's like a teaching college slash hospital for, for medical students, UAMS. So this piece of garbage, Kim Patterson, announced that they're going to re- require it anyway. There's no rule of law. There's no rule of law. See, the problem is, even if you have the legislature, but if you have a dirtbag governor who's in on it, they just won't enforce the law. It doesn't matter anymore. Until we have a show of force of all the people, it won't matter. A court, a legislature, they just do what they want. This is why we need to self-separate. You cannot live together with people like this. It's that simple. You know, I was thinking the Wyoming GOP voted yesterday to disown Liz Cheney, right? Basically not to call her a Republican anymore. And I was thinking, that's great, but I don't disagree. But you know you have like two-thirds of your members in the state legislature that voted against pushing back on Biden's immoral, inhumane, and illegal injection mandate. So what's up with that? Why aren't you disowning them? So again, we don't have freedom. We don't have the ability to treat people humanely in the hospitals and to block remdesivir and to block the clot shots even for children, even in the reddest of areas. Because too many of our people have not become vocal. Now, our guest segment today, sponsored by Birch Gold. I don't need to tell you with inflation running amok and trillions of dollars being passed out of Congress every day, our money's worth nothing. Gold has always been the best hedge against high inflation, but there's so many options out there. I choose Birch Gold. Um, They have a five-star review from thousands of satisfied customers, A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, and they can help you protect your hard-earned savings right now thanks to a little-known section of the IRS tax code. You can legally move your IRA or 401k into precious metals with no tax penalties. To get started on protecting your savings with gold in a tax-sheltered account, Request their free info kit from Birch Gold by texting the word Daniel to 989898. Again, they give you a comprehensive 20-page kit on how gold and silver can protect your savings to walk you through it um, so you could evacuate from volatile stocks and bonds and you know, or treasuries that literally are paying out nothing. 
Um, zero cause, zero obligation for this info. Text Daniel to the number 989898. Request your free kit of gold from by texting Daniel to 989898. Now, as I mentioned before, I wanted to do a show trying to quantify a little bit what we're seeing in VARES. A lot of people have questions as to how VARES works. Um, what does the data reflect? Is it really underreported? I mean, obviously, most of the people I talked to that had adverse events, uh, it was never reported by them or their doctor. So certainly, uh, reality would suggest that. But what are the trends? What are we seeing? What are the safety signals that are being covered up? What is not working properly? I figured I'd bring on a special expert. Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough has been telling me I got to get her on the show. Dr. Jessica Rose, she's a viral immunologist, expert in molecular biology and biochemistry. She also has a degree in applied mathematics. So very much the core data and science disciplines that you need to understand these issues. She's published several papers on the virus and the vaccine. One of them, uh, together with Dr. McCullough, which has now been pulled and we'll talk about that. We've certainly seen that a lot. She's originally from uh, Canada, and she's, again, done a lot of work on theirs. So I figured we got to get her take on what's going on. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for joining us today on Blaze Media. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I've watched with great interest a lot of your uh, presentations. I've you know read your study um, on myocarditis. So could you just give a sense of... 30,000 foot view. Uh, we've had VAERS in America for several decades uh, to be be a pharmacological surveillance on adverse events from vaccines, and no one really paid attention to it in the general public. Um, how do you compare what we're seeing entered into VAERS now versus any other time period? Well, it's not really comparable to what we've seen historically. And the reason why more people know about VAERS, they, they know what it is even, and in fact, uh, some people still might not. VAERS is an acronym, by the way, that stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And this is the system uh, used in the United States, which is the brainchild of the FDA and the CDC. And yes, it came about in uh, 1990. So more people know about it now because it's been so heavily used this year. And the reason it's being used is to file adverse event reports in the context of the COVID-19 biological products. So we are currently uh, at a staggeringly high number of reports in VAERS, and that includes uh, what we call severe adverse events. So we're... Let's see if I can find my my tally. I only analyze the domestic data, which is the the data that's recorded for people living in the, in the United States. So there are two data sets that you can actually download from the website. One is the domestic data set, and the other one is the foreign data set, which I'm not even really sure what that data represents. It's, it might be people who are American citizens who live abroad, but anyway, sure. it's it's not a full data set. So, uh, so in other words, anyway, the, the, the top lines that we're used to hearing, like the 18,000 deaths, you're saying that includes that foreign cohort. 
Yes, in fact, it does. So when I analyze the data, I don't include that foreign data set. So my counts are always about half of what people are reporting from open bears. So I'm, I'm trying to find my my tallies for the for the week. So as you go um, through those numbers and, and look for them and, and you'll let me know when you get, you get a hold of it. I just wanted to, again, try to give a sense of the safety signals we're seeing from here. When, when you look at these numbers, whatever they are, they are very large. They're much larger than we've ever seen before. Um, typically, after a few dozen deaths, we pull a drug from the market, much less uh, abstain from mandating it and promoting it and everything. And this has certainly had thousands of deaths, you know, tens of thousands of very serious adverse events. But I look at what goes on in, in the world. And even before we get to the stigma and the fear of reporting uh, adverse events and the kind of carrot and stick approach to doctors where there's really more of a of a stick against you than a carrot for reporting it um just from a sense of tracing back an adverse event yesterday there was an npr um book editor that just dropped dead um according to new york times immediately and suddenly from a pulmonary embolism oh now i have no idea i have no idea what happened i can't um, insinuate anything. I don't know. But there's a lot of this happening, particularly in the realm of blood clotting disorders, um, even among younger people, but certainly a senior elderly population. And is there a sense that that's being quantified? And how would you even trace it back without uh, doing some sort of an autopsy? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um from the very beginning of all this, autopsies have been, uh, let's just use the word discouraged. Um, so there are a few doctors, pathologists around the world who are doing a few autopsies, but it, it literally is a few. I mean, it's hard to, to, to get data from the number that have been done. So, yeah, that's a tricky question. Um but, I mean, the, the number of pulmonary embolism events in VAERS is, uh, I can look that up for you now if, if I can find my pulmonary embolism data, but it's, it's off the charts as, uh, you know, as well as any other adverse event that you could name. Uh, just, just to backtrack, I found my, uh, it's, so, it's so crazy, I have three computers open now. Um, the, the total number of domestic uh, adverse event reports to VAERS as of uh, last Friday is 643,000. So to put this into context, this is uh, something close to 1,500% higher than the average number of adverse events that have been reported to VAERS over the last 30 years. There's nothing typical about what's going on here. And what I was about to say about the severe adverse events, which includes death, disability, a life-threatening illness, a birth defect, emergency room or hospitalization, these have been um, above what the VAERS handbook calls normal. They've been above the 15% of the total adverse event count uh, above normal since the very beginning. We're still at 18% of the total uh, adverse events uh, being severe. And this is really something significant as well. Um, deaths are off the charts. We're at like 10,000 deaths by the domestic count. 
uh, th this is unheard of. The, the average number of deaths for the past 30 years, and by the way, when I say that, I mean for all the vaccines combined over the past 30 years, the average was 155 a year. 155 versus 10,000. I mean, <laughs> what's the cutoff value, hey? It's uh, the question that's been on all of our minds for a long time. Uh, other atypical things are female reproductive issues. We haven't seen this before in vaccines yep. in, in human history. And now it's not just that it's occurring. It's occurring at high rates. So. And, and I could tell you, I know a lot of women that mm -hmm. have had menstrual irregularities. And, you know, it's not something people talk about. And I know for a fact none of yeah. them were reported to theirs. Nobody that's took right, that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, so that brings up the issue of underreporting. So VAERS is a perfectly imperfect system. And the fact that we have this much data and that so many more people are using VAERS itself is interesting. So um, the underreporting factor has been estimated by myself and also by Steve Kirsch and uh, Ronald Kostoff. And it's we think it's somewhere between 31 and 100, which means that all these numbers that you're hearing now, you have to multiply by one of those factors. So I prefer to look at the underreporting factor, which it's a known thing. There's 31, and you would say even yeah. death? I'm not sure. I, I, I look at this the underreporting factor more as a range. So each sure. adverse event is probably going to be associated with its own underreporting factor. So you would think that uh, death would be uh, less underreported because, you know, it's, it's death. It's a sure. it's probably the worst, ad well, uh, arguably the worst adverse event you can suffer from. But um, but no matter how you cut it, I mean, underreporting is a serious thing. And it's you can look at it from many points of view. I mean, you've probably talked to people, uh, GPs, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, whoever is, is is meant to be filing the VAERS reports, just not having the time to do it. Like, say yep. you're 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 an ER physician and you you just work twelve to fourteen hours, and you had even ten patients come in that you know are suffering from an adverse event, or you suspect. Let's just say you suspect it, then you're actually supposed to uh, report these to VAERS. That's that's you, you have to do that according to. Uh, to, I'm not sure if it's a law, but you're, you're meant to do that. Uh, and it takes 30 minutes to file a VAERS report. So just logistically, I, I don't think that a fraction of the adverse events that are occurring are actually making it into VAERS. And even the ones that do get reported, that if they make it into the system, some of them are being removed. I mean, that's a whole other issue. But um, yeah. be, be, being removed, and or or I've heard of people they go through the half an hour and then it just jams. It just doesn't go through, and they lose the information, which you know could happen when you fill out other applications. Sometimes if there's something going wrong, but you know there's a lot of ways this waiting people. I've even heard in a lot of ERs where young men come in with myocarditis, very clearly related to the shot. And they refuse to record it, even though that's something that notoriously is already labeled as something that is is known to to happen from the shot, much less things that are much harder to trace back, like a, like a miscarriage or things like that. So to, to start with myocarditis, you put out a, a study with uh, Dr. McCullough, 
And you estimated that in 12 to 15-year-olds, the reported cases of myocarditis were 19 times higher than the background rates. So, so are you saying that you have evidence that the incidence of myocarditis are likely a lot higher than what we're seeing in theirs, which is high? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, the number of children aged 12 to 15 that are, uh, quote unquote meant, or let's use the word expected to succumb to myocarditis in a year in the United States is one out of a hundred thousand. So we saw 19 times that in this age group, just in the VAERS reports that we, we analyzed. So, I mean, yeah. And the other thing is, uh, what was I going to say about the ER visits? Oh, the dose response. There's a six-fold uh, higher reporting frequency in the context of dose two in, in 15-year-old boys. So when you plot this data on a two-dimensional graph, let's say, uh, age on the x-axis and the absolute number of myocarditis reports on the y, and you plot, uh, you know, for each, for each age, you have a bar, and then you overlay two sets of bars that represent dose one and dose two, then you see six times uh, higher uh, reporting frequency for dose two. So not only does this imply causation, but I mean, this, it, it's, it kind of, it, it makes sense because if, if a young boy, let's just say uh, a 15 year old boy gets, gets the first jab um, and they experience chest pain because chest pain is really highly reported and bears an association with myocarditis in the context of the injections. COVID induced myocarditis doesn't have this, uh, this cofactor as, as far as I understand it. Peter's a much better person to ask because he's the cardiologist, but this is what I understand. So say a young boy has chest pain. I, I highly doubt I'm not a boy, I'm a girl, but when I was you know, a 15-year-old girl playing soccer or whatever, if I'd experienced chest pain, I never, ever in a million years would have associated this with, say, a vaccine that I'd gotten a week earlier. However, it could have been the warning sign for myocarditis. So then they get the second jab, and almost immediately, I have statistics on this that I'm working on today, um, I think within 48 hours, 67% of the uh, reports are filed in children ages uh, 10 to 20, so that the 15-year-olds are in this age group. So they get the second whack-a-mole, and all of a sudden the, the, there, there's damage being done. The, this myocarditis uh, diagnosis is, is confirmed because this child ends up in the hospital. Like, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what happens to you when you, when you sustain that kind of heart damage, because I haven't experienced it, but to have a child, my point here is this, to have a child end up in the hospital from myocarditis is neither mild nor is it rare anymore. We're seeing this with, with greater frequency than we are seeing COVID-induced myocarditis. So I know that was a bit rambly, but um, yeah, it's, it's very clear-cut evidence to me. I mean, even the CDC and the FDA have reported about the the risk of myocarditis in young boys associated with these products. Yep. And, in, in, you know, I know you didn't ask my opinion, but in my opinion, 
because VAERS is a pharmacovigilance tool, which means it's, you know, it's, it's designed to detect safety signals like this that we didn't see in pre-market testing. And if you see one of these safety signals, you're supposed to stop the product rollout, <laughs> you know, or at least, you know, do some studies to confirm yeah. or deny the risk. And then, you know, if you confirm that there isn't uh, uh, a risk associated, then maybe you can keep going. But if... <laughs> I mean, informed consent. Hello, does anybody know what that means? We have anymore? never I mean, done this. I mean, Taiwan never. obviously suspended the second shot um, of, of Pfizer for for uh, you know teenagers, and instead we we just went to the age cohort younger and stepped on the gas pedal. So you're saying you're you're digging this straight out of the VAERS data with your myocarditis study with Dr. McCullough which clearly is, you know, much higher incidence than we were typically used to. And clearly we know that we are not um, quantifying the full universe of what's likely out there, but still your study was pulled. And we've mm-hmm. seen a lot of this throughout the last year um, where if it's, if it's a cool study that's in with the cool kids, no matter how wrong the conclusion is, the data it stays around, but anything they don't like, we're always like, okay, what's the over under on two weeks that thing gets pulled. So what's the background behind that? And which publication was it? Yeah. So, uh, this, this was the, the third, um, uh, bears data analysis that I penned. So this one was, was focused on myocarditis and the main finding was this thing about, uh, young boys, and Peter uh, was, you know, we, we were co-authors on this. He's the cardiologist among us. Um, so it was really important for me to have that kind of expertise. He, he's, he's a genius too. So um, so we submitted to Current Problems in Cardiology. It was very happily and quickly uh, accepted, uh, peer-reviewed by the editor-in-chief, confirmed, uh, published online October 1st, everything was fine. Uh, you know, we, we emailed each other back and forth, you know, do you want color, uh, figures? Yes. Okay. Here, here's the, uh, receipt. We paid the fees. We paid extra for color figures because the figures lose their meaning without color, uh, sign their contracts. Everything was hunky dory. And then, uh, one day, I think it was the 15th of October, um, Peter and I separately, of course, get uh, notices in our inboxes from him from a journal, I think, and me from people who are interested in reading the article saying that the article had been taken down. And I'm like, what? So I, I have a window open on my computer always to, you know, I refresh it every day, checking the statistics checking to see, you know, the status of the paper, because for anybody who does this, publishing a paper is really exciting. So you're like, you know, you're, you're waiting for that day when it's like immortalized. Um, so yeah, sure enough, I refreshed the link and it had the words temporary, uh, temporarily withdrawn written beside it. And I'm like, Whoa, what's this? Um, and so I, I asked all my colleagues, I asked Peter, of course, you know, uh, is, is this, is this normal? Is this common? Uh, what does this mean? And nobody, nobody saw something like this before. And 
So I wrote to the editor-in-chief and the publisher, and I asked, you know, very politely and humbly, um, what's going on? Because we, we weren't notified. That's, that's, that's probably a part of the story I should have already said. Yeah, neither, I mean, because I, I think when people see something withdrawn, they expect that in the background there was some sort of back and forth where they were confronted. Hey, I don't like your data set. I don't like your methodology. Yep. And you kind of debated yep. it. And then they ruled that, yeah, we don't really like it. So you're saying it was just taken down. You didn't know about it. They just put the words there and did not notify us, which is extraordinarily weird. Uh, it, it doesn't happen like that. So I wrote to them and I even had to wait an entire day. I wrote two emails for a response and they said, oh, we, we decided that we might not publish it because it wasn't an invited paper. And so Peter, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. They were just trying to come up with something to buy no, some time. It wasn't an invited paper. It's about myocarditis from one of the world's leading cardiologists. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, exactly. And so, okay, so now after being so excited to publish it, now you're telling me, like, it was just weird. So Peter responded. He said, no, 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 no. And uh, he said that invited paper, non-invited papers get published all the time. Uh, reinstate the paper or we're going we're gonna to take action. So we had to wait another week for them to answer. And finally, their final answer was, we're not publishing it because we don't have to. That was literally their reason. They said it's written in their, uh, in their rules that at any point during the publication process that they can refuse to publish, even though it had already been immortalized on PubMed. So this was just like a kick in the, in the stomach. And so, yeah, I mean, now so, we're... So wait, we're wait, the- wait, wait, back up. They never said like... Hey, your data's faulty. We don't no, like not not one single problem with the work. Nothing. <laughs> not not they didn't even try to come up with a reason why it was something to do with the actual quality of the work. They didn't even try. They just said we don't have to, so we're not going to do it. See, what what so- scares me from hearing what you're saying is how many other good entrepreneuring scientists have investigated some sort of vexing component of this pandemic or vaccine and have submitted stuff that we've never seen because it was torpedoed because they don't like, like, for example, let's say someone, I'm not saying this happened, but someone would have done a massive D-dimer study, you know, of microplotting. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's going to get stuffed in the hole and we'll never find out about it. Um, This is just very scary. Wow. Uh, I I didn't realize that they didn't even posit any problem with it. No, no, nothing, nothing at all. And you know what's funny? I mean, I I don't know the truth about who's being censored or why. I I find it highly strange that they would have done this to, like, I'm literally a published nobody. Like, in in, in the world of having published a lot, I I am not in that world. So (laughs) I know Peter has, and I understand that that's, you know, know, that's that's probably, uh, it's more about, silencing peter but if they had just published it you know it probably wouldn't have been a big deal and not many people would have written it or or, or read it and it, it just gained so much traction though even before they had finally published it on social media you know thanks to some good friends of mine <laughs> um so yeah i don't know i i find it highly ironic i think they really shot themselves in the foot with this because neither Peter nor I are have any intention of backing away from this. 
um, we're getting this published. Like, it's going to be a little bit late, but um, yeah, the, the whole point of doing what we do is to get the information and the data to the public and to the scientific community and to the pediatricians and to the other cardiologists. And, and they can decide for themselves after they read it you know, whether it's relevant to them or whether they think it's garbage or, you know, yada, yada. It's like, it's, it's just, um, it's not up to the tortious interferers to decide for everybody else what should and should not be read by the public. Um, well, that's the so, name yeah. of the game now. It's, it's pretty unfortunate, but to, I want to just get back to the data um, how people could access this and what it means. If you could explain a little bit when you have the weekly updates, okay, so you know the deaths go up a few hundred, the blood clots go up an X amount. What is the time frame for the updates? And what is what sort of time lag is there on the data and how does that affect our ability to properly assess, uh, assess these uh, safety signals? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question, and I'll I'll answer it two ways. Uh, well, VARES is updated weekly, and it's always a week behind uh, by entry. However, uh, I also published a paper recently on the pharmacovigilance-ness of VARES, and I found that um, I'm sure that you've heard people talking about the fact that VARES data has a backlog, that it's back yeah. backed up by a lot. So I was really intrigued by that. And so I found a way to kind of ask the question and answer it with data. So since VAERS is updated weekly, I have been downloading it since the very beginning because I, I kind of had a hunch right from the start that this data set was going to become very interesting uh, quickly. So every time the VAERS data is updated weekly, the previous week's data is overwritten. So if you haven't downloaded that particular set, then you you don't have that data. That, that data is lost. Mm. Um, so if if you were thinking about this rationally, um, and you had say uh, you had a certain number of updates, like twenty different various update dates, and you wanted to know how many people died each, you know, update. Then you would draw a simple two-dimensional graph. You would plot how many people died on the y-axis against the update date on the x-axis. So you would probably see something like uh, uh, a not-so-steep exponential curve. And that's, that's indeed what you see. So if you take the most recent updated data, which is basically the, the overwritten full set, that should include all of those 20 updates, uh, dated data, and you plotted that, uh, the exact same information, the number of people who died per, per date, per update date, then you would expect those two curves to like, at least follow the same trajectory. Maybe not be exactly the same, because you have to account for the fact that the data is shifting around. We have to remove uh, duplicates and some of the entries aren't, you know, they're not quite, you know, thorough enough, et cetera. So, but you would expect them to follow the same kind of trajectory, but the trajectories are nothing alike. Um, and 
I, I can't draw a picture right now, but try to visualize this. So your first data that I described of the original update dates looks like a shallow exponential curve. And the more the, the full data set looks more like a uh, a reverse exponential. I don't know how to describe it. It's not the same uh, trajectory at all. And why this is important, to make a long story short, is that if you were monitoring VARES, say you have a grandma and you're, you're trying to decide for your grandma if it's uh, safe for her based on her age uh, and based on what's being reported to VARES in the death category, uh, if it's safe for her. So you're, you're following how many people are dying per week uh, in her age, at her age. And if you had been looking at this in March, you wouldn't have seen anything too dramatic. I mean, there, there were still more than there should be uh, if this product was, was actually safe, but it wasn't out of control like it is now. So you would have been looking, looking, looking week by week, and, and you probably would have decided for yourself, well, you know, statistically the risk isn't so high. So you may have decided uh, to help your grandma with the decision, uh, you know, based on your observations of bears, that this was safe. However, because of where the death count actually was, because the data hadn't been added to the system mm. yet, you're, you would have been looking at a number that was completely wrong, like sixfold wrong, really wrong. And that's not even accounting for the underreporting factor. So I, sure, I that's never, just the backlog you're saying. That's right. And the fact that the overwrite. So, so my next question I was going to ask you, but it ties in with the boosters. So there's a whole surge now of people getting a third shot, particularly older people. And are, so are you seeing safety signals with the booster or would we not even know yet? Because the backlog, because I've had some people in our circles yeah. on this program and they've raised the concern that the buffer change, the formulation changes, they have better ways of having the, um, you know, ha having it out so it doesn't get too, you know, too warm and void out the, the potency of it, that perhaps it's more potent than it was before. People are positing different things. Is there a way we could pick that up or are we picking that up? Well, it's, it's an amazing question. So my... What I'm seeing in the data is another surge. So what that is to me is both what you just mentioned, it's like the beginning of the damage being caused by the third shot, and also the delayed adverse events that people are starting to experience now, like cancer coming out of remission, uh, autoimmune conditions coming back, uh, all these things that take a little bit of time to, to manifest themselves again. Um, so I think that we are also going to be facing another backlog situation. So it's kind of crazy that we're seeing an increase again. So if you plot all the adverse event data as a whole, like as a, as an absolute number against date, update date, then what you would have seen up until, uh, I don't know, I guess July, Wait, I can actually look at this now. I don't have to guess. And as, as you're doing that, I just want to tell our audience what's eerily similar to this on the safety side is also on the efficacy side. There's a backlog. Yeah. So immediately it's, oh, there's 90% vaccinated in this area or whatever it is. 
but the deaths are always going to be the COVID deaths that is are going to be backlogged as well. So it it has the effect of exaggerating its efficacy, mm-hmm. in addition to I guess um, underreporting the the safety, and that's how they're able to you know because it appeared there like you said in February March. Hey, you know we expected it's kind of an eight month deal that was rushed. These shots, uh, it's gonna be shoddy. You know, you'll have some more adverse events, but you know, generally speaking, looks like it's working. And then it turned out it was really a kind of a lull in the virus to begin with um, during those months. And then, like you're saying, a lot of the uh, safety reporting was delayed, uh, and and we would have gotten a very different picture. And and the boosters too, like our, you know, we're getting a lot of reports, even from the mainstream media in America and other countries that hospitals are full, but not with COVID, right? That's not a right-wing thing. That's in mainstream media. Now, they don't exactly say what it is, but usually blood clotting (laughs) makes its way into the article. Um, And we certainly know there's a strong signal for that. Um, But but do do you have some of that data in front of you? You mean like the microemboli stuff? Yes. Um, Yeah, I do. But... um... Yeah, it's it's interesting that you said that. I it, it's really hard to detect clinically, like with tests that uh, these microemboli. They're they're not really, as far as I know, they're not really detectable by conventional MRIs and yep. stuff like that. I think you have to do like special, like anyway. Um, yeah, I have I have the plot that I was referring to in front of me now. So up until um, about the end of June, we had a second phase in a biphasic uh, exponential curve of uh, of adverse event increase, and then it started to slow down. I, I just want to finish this thought here, and I thought that we were, you know, out of the woods, so to say, because the injection rate was going down, therefore the adverse ev- uh, sure. events were going to slow down. That's how, you know, that's how it works, closed system. But... Uh, Somewhere around the end of August, <clears throat> what what else happened around the end of August? <laughs> oh, that's right. Um, what was that? August twenty sixth or something? They had the mm-hmm. meeting. Something like that. Well, well, no, I'm thinking more about uh, third injections, but whatever. Um, no, exactly. That was around the, the around that time. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Okay, sorry. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm I'm still thinking about the five to eleven year old meeting. Though. And by the way, pharmacies in the United States were doing it. You know, before then as well, I know people, they would just walk in. It's They kind of wink and nod and laugh about it. The same places that deny ivermectin, they they were giving this before it was approved. Yeah, yeah. There's so much wrong with what's... The, <laughs> it's like, this This is what I summarized this today. It's like, COVID-19 is is like the the brat in the schoolyard that, that just like... It, the rules don't apply to them because no one wants to deal with them. So it's like, this is like that kid. It's like, no one, the rules don't apply <laughs> when you're talking about anything COVID-19 related. It's like, nah, free pass, uh, pardon the pun. Um, yeah. So uh, somewhere around the end of August, we started to see the exact same uh, increase, uh, rate of increase that we started to see when, when the first surge started and now it's kind of started to like the slope is a little bit uh, less now, but it, it, it's yeah. I wish I could show you, but anyway, you'll have to visualize. We are still on the increase here, and 
Yeah, I don't see any signs of stopping. Now, now, when when would we? How would we start seeing safety signals on the five to eleven year olds? Mm, well, I'm tracking that now, and I'm sure a lot of people will be. Um, interestingly enough, there's already a lot of data in bears for children in that age group there shouldn't be there shouldn't be any data for any kid under 12 because even by their their uh eua uh standards you know you're not you're not allowed (laughs) technically to be injecting children who are less than 12 um they weren't a part of the clinical trials either but it doesn't seem like they actually care about what they did in their clinical trials, but whatever. No, the more um, the merrier. Give anyone a shot, right. any type of shot, mix and match. Um, we're almost out of time. There's just two quick yeah. questions I wanted to broach with you. Uh, a lot of the, the discussion around safety signals uh, rightfully revolved around younger people and teenagers just because the risk-benefit analysis. But everyone assumed oh, older people, well, that for sure. And, and, you know, I would have said January, February, yeah, if you're elderly, it's worth getting it. But the reality is, um, the same way the virus is more dangerous to them, uh, the spike protein is. I mean, if you you put something like this into a body that's that's frail, it's mm-hmm. bound to be a, a a problem as well. But my concern has been that, to, to the extent we're even catch capturing the 30, 40 year olds that drop dead, which we're clearly clearly not. Certainly, you have an eighty year old. You have someone in a nursing home. Um, do do you have any sense either from you know Medicare data or anything that among the real elderly, this is likely causing more problems that we're not picking up on theirs? Well, it's causing more deaths. Uh, some people and I are looking at that now. We're, we're, we really want to show using the data that that the 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 deaths in the elderly are really really shot up like right after each of the injection rollouts so can't really say anything much on that because you know we're not done but um sure yeah the, the other thing people should know since you brought up the spike is that these products are causing such systemic failure in humans it's affecting every system that we have and the most important one that it's affecting is the immune system it seems to be causing Right, like complete and total immune dysregulation in some people, and we have no idea why. I mean, the spike is doing this protein is doing something bad, um, and it seems like uh, there's a paper that just came out that Peter mentions now all the time that the the spike protein sticks around for 15 months. So, if it's causing systemic damage, and you keep injecting yourself with this thing that that doesn't clear quickly in the first place. You're going to get cumulative damage. And if you are old and you have senescent cells, that doesn't bode well for you. Uh, If you're young, it doesn't bode well because young people's uh, little immune systems are still forming. Mm. So, and and just on the kids, I mean, in case people don't know, I'm sure you all do who are listening, but there's absolutely zero reason to inject these kids with any kind of product in the context of COVID because they're not affected by it. We all know that. And the problems that are going to ensue, not just as a result of the injections, the adverse events, but like the evolution of the virus because of this pressure 
it's it's going to be a nightmare. I mean, we thought we were in a nightmare before. Yep, before I, mean, I brought you on, I, I talked about Gibraltar, 100% vaccinated, 40% got boosters. They're on their second post-vaccination wave, and they just announced they're canceling Christmas there. Uh, oh, no. Because it's gotten so bad. So it's like, you know, there's nowhere to run or hide from that yeah. conclusion that it's some degree of vaccine-mediated viral enhancement because mm-hmm. you can't blame anyone. They all got it. It's a small country, very defined population. They all got it. They all got the Pfizer shot, actually, just like in Israel. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's nowhere to blame, but they're going to keep rinse and repeat. And that leads me to my final thing that I'm concerned about. Um, and this has always worried me more than anything. As bad as the VAERS data is, and and even if you assume it's underreporting, and we have so many, let, let, let's say there were, uh, Steve Kirsch, I think, thinks it's, you know, maybe 200,000 deaths. Let's let's just say it is for a moment. And that's mm-hmm. unbelievable. It shocks the mind, the number of blood clots, the number of serious events. Let's say instead of a hundred and whatever thousand, it's a million serious events. Mm-hmm. And that would be catastrophic. Let's say that is true. We certainly can't rule it out. But what worries me even more than that is this. If you had a vaccine that was never studied long-term and – you know, prima facie, short term, we don't really see any problems. You're like, yeah, you know, you could assume it's okay, it's okay long term. I mean, you can't, but fine. But when you have this robust of a, a safety signal problem short term, what does that portend long term? Yeah. And how yeah. are we ever going to quantify that? Because the longer you get away from the shot, the less likely anyone's going to trace it. Well, we're trying our best. <laughs> this is like the the craziest 3D puzzle that I've ever done. And I've done a lot of 3D puzzles. Um, there might not be a way, you know, because the data, I mean, you're absolutely right, by the way. Like the, the, the fact that this is affecting the immune system and the long-term effects are completely unknown, but it, it seems to be becoming clearer and clearer that there are going to be serious long-term effects in many people. Um, but yeah, I totally lost my thought now. Um, so, so that's the thing, the long-term, how we quantify that. My question right. to you is, is there, you know, I, I advise a lot of state legislatures here um, and what they can do to pick up the regulatory slack that obviously has been ignored by the feds. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a state in the United States, a state government, and you want to allocate funding for your own surveillance system, mm-hmm. how would you go about doing what? What do you think could be done better? If I were to tell, let's say, you know, the Florida governor, hey, you know, we need to have our own system here in Florida. Um, it's it's not being uh, quantified properly at a federal level, we need to start our own system. What what would you do differently? Well, actually, I'm on a team of people who've been trying to solve that problem. I first of all, I would get rid of theirs. Uh, I know that that sounds weird because I I depend on it now for my my weekly updates <laughs> of data. But uh, yeah, I would redesign uh, a system such that it was far more geared toward the the individual um i would uh decentralize i think might be the right word uh i would make it uh completely accessible to the public all of the data well i mean to a degree you can't you know no you can't let people know who you are type thing there has to be on anonymity but um 
Yeah, this is it's an excellent. Uh, this needs to be done, and and I don't have like the best ideas uh, formulated now as to exactly how this would be implemented. But um, it would have to be based more on um, on having having a system that's going to actually help you know the the individuals that are going to actually guide the the development of products that are going to benefit people um an actual pharmacovigilance system uh that's that's not the best answer i realize but um, sure sure but but the point the point is it has to be that you're trying to actually make sure the product is safe not yes. just uh, you know checking a box so you could say you have something but the idea is to skate through it with um you know the least uh, negative uh, uh, reporting about the product, and that that I think is is obviously very important, and and that's why we rely so much on your work. Before I let you go, where could people find this data? People have a lot of you know regular person has a hard time finding the VAERS updates. Do you have a website? Is there another place you recommend? Yes, I have a website which uh, directly uploads the, the figures associated with my analysis, and it also has all my interviews and info. So it's uh, https dot dot slash slash i slash do slash not slash consent dot netlify, N-E-T-L-I-F-Y dot app. It sounds a bit weird, um, but it's because it's the only way I could find to bring our code into a GitHub account and then transfer it to a website. So even though it looks a bit weird, um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not. <laughs> well, definitely, um, definitely we encourage folks to go there and see the data for yourself. Thank you, Dr. Rose, for giving us this presentation and definitely keep us updated um, as you publish this new data and see these emerging trends. We'd really love to, to see them because we all have to get ahead of the curve before it's too late. Yeah, I'm going to be paying close attention to what's happening to your children. So stay tuned. And Good luck on, <laughs> on your work and thanks for everything you do. Take care. And again, folks, we are just about out of time. I do recommend that you tune in to Blaze TV, 8 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday night. So that is coming up soon. I will be on with Glenn Beck and Steve Dace discussing the whole origin and trajectory of this great reset. Um, you got to put it together. You can't take each point. You don't just sabotage every report like Jessica Rose was talking about out of nowhere. This was all clearly, clearly planned. Uh, it's unescapable at this point. The question is how far it goes back and how many years um, was this in the making and exactly who was roped into this. But we're only going to fight power with power. And that's the thing. Um, we got to get some of these states to start filling in the gap. We got to get on their case. We got to start defeating people in primaries. And you got to take care of your own health. Um, again, seven cells, you know, it's obviously where, where we have uh, available ivermectin and nitazoxanide. Two things one good news, one bad news. So the good news is um, nitazoxanide, the doctors are going to give the prescription, even for most of the people that they feel can't get ivermectin, like even if you're on coumadine. I'm told you can get nitazoxanide. Truly is, nitazoxanide is even safer than ivermectin, believe it or not. Um, so that might be an option for some of you who are denied ivermectin because of a certain, you know, certain drugs you're taking or whatever, severe asthma. Um, they, you know, I don't agree with it, but they 
didn't feel comfortable prescribing. The bad news is because there's more of a robust uh, consultation with this required, they did raise their rates $10. So instead of a $25 consultation fee tacked on, it's a $35. It still is a lot cheaper than the consultation fees in most other places unless you can get it for free. So again, you can check that out, 7 Also, order your patriotic gear from shop.blazemedia.com. 20% off Hurwitz20. Hurwitz20 is the promo code if you want to give a Christmas gift to your friend, like a Let's Go Brandon t-shirt or hat or some things like that. Check out there again at shop.blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.